Hello. Good morning, everyone. Hi. Welcome to Getting to Yes, the Art of the Pitch. Uh, we're really happy you're all here. Uh, and, um, my name's Emily Kwong. I was uh, here last year. I won an award for a piece called Parts of Speech. Um, and uh, I'm really excited to be back as a new Voices scholar. You may have seen some of us floating around. If you see anyone with a little blue dangly under their name tag, say hello. Uh, right now I'm working at a public radio station in Alaska, uh, doing newsroom reporting as a fellow there and learning a lot about Coast Guard rescues and bear maulings and um, all kinds of interesting and wonderful topics. This lovely woman, Ann Hepperman, you know her as an award-winning independent radio producer and educator, Rockefeller Fellow, and uh, she'll be leading this event. I'm really excited. There's so many great women up here, too. Can I just say? You forgot my talent. Oh, your talent. Oh, Ann Hepperman can move her hair without touching it. Would you like to demonstrate? <laughs> I know, it's pretty impressive, right? <laughs> All right, thank you. All right, way, yay, Emily. All right, so um, I like short introductions. I'm going to roll right in, but we have a little bit of business. Um, so, yes, I'm Ann Hepperman, she who can move her hair. Um, so this is getting to yes, or how can I make some money for producers or for editors? Get to the fucking point already. Um, so Air's been doing this for a long time. This is like the ninth year. Um, the goal is to strengthen the pipeline between Air's 1,000 strong reporters and significant broadcast and digital outlets. So this is how it's going to go. We have three uh, very brave people who are here pitching, um, and they're going to be timed, and then we'll have a bit of a discussion. I'm going to have questions for the editors in between, but, you know, this is also, no, this is not how it works. So if you think that, like, if you're going to, like, pitch to um, All Things Considered, and you're like, yes, when can I make a time to come and meet you with a microphone? I'll get the audience assembled. We'll go, and we'll do this. That's actually not what happens um, so you write your pitch but I mean this is all about like the instruction of kind of what's going through their minds and so hopefully this will help you to figure out when you're writing your pitch as well and I'll have some questions about contacting them writing their pitches all those kind of things um, I've been a member of AIR since 2006 it feels like much longer but that's actually a good thing because AIR is so wonderful it's just like the family you always wanted to belong in um, and uh, let's see, is Beck here? Yes, she's over there. So we do we have any editor one-on-one -on -one sessions that people can go to? Or Okay, they have been snatched up. Okay, can they still get the 10% discount? Are you going to say no to that as well? Okay, wait, so you just said no. So there's no more... No to saying no. Okay, can I get 50% discount? Okay, a million percent discount. Actually, it's a 10% discount at the air table if you want to join. Um, so here are our lovely editors uh, who are here today. We have Stephanie Fu from This American Life. Applause. Allison McAdam from All Things Considered. And we have this random woman here. I don't know. What is your name? Julie. Uh, okay. So we have Julie S. Uh, from Julie Shapiro from Radio Tonic, uh, who is also here today. So before we start, though, I'm going to have you ladies answer, um, or actually not answer this question, but finish this sentence. So, and I'm going to go down on the line. So when you pitch to me, 
always dot dot dot. Um, always research your pitch enough to know what your ending is going to be. Um, you don't have to know word for word precisely, but you should always know where you're trying to go and what you want uh, the listener to take away. All right, Allison. Um, always demonstrate not only why you care about the story, but why somebody else will be convinced to care about the story. Mm. Okay, Julie. Always talk about us, um, by which I mean do your research, listen to the show before you pitch, and please know what we're looking for so we can have a conversation about how your idea fits into what we're looking for. Okay, so now the even more interesting question. So when you pitch to me, never dot, dot, dot. And it can be, you know, never call me Sally. You know, (laughs) know the name of the person you're pitching to. Never give me a cliffhanger pitch. Um, I hate the sentence. If you want to know more, email me. (laughs) This Um, is the second time this has happened. This must be a thing with pitchers. Yeah. Like, I should know everything. Okay. Um... I'm deciding between two. Um, <laughs> you can say both. You okay, can say, yeah, you okay, can okay, say two. Um, you okay. get a pass. So um, one is never send me more than a minute of tape unless unless it was requested. Like one of my favorite stories I worked on recently, I heard 18 seconds of tape and we were like, this is going to be great. And it was great. So not we don't have time to listen to a lot of tape. And the other is um, don't say that if... If our show will say yes to your pitch, then you can get your protagonist to talk to you, mm. which has happened. So. Um, well, never my never is a version of your always, actually. Never leave out the why. Why this story? Um, <coughs> why? Okay. All right, so we're going to dive right Ooh, can in. Can I add one more thing? Never, oh, yeah. Don't even, don't even, don't even, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't, don't ever. Don't even. Um, don't email me audio ever. We, ABC has very fragile inboxes. And not, <laughs> oh. not even 18 seconds. You find another way to send it. Thank you. Okay. It sounds harsh. But. Okay. Okay, well, that's good to know. It's not that you don't want it. It's right, just exactly. that Australia can can't handle it. So, Okay, Australia can't handle your audio, so don't send it. Um, all right, first up we have Abigail Kiel. She's going to introduce herself, and then she's going to go ahead. She's going to be pitching to Stephanie Fu from This American Life. You will be timed five minutes. Is my my introduction timed? No, no, no. Your introduction is not timed to yourself. But once you get going on your pitch, it is timed. And I give you a very gentle one-minute warning, you know, so. All right. Well, I'm Abigail Keel. Um, I'm a student at the journalism school in Columbia, Missouri, And I'm studying radio journalism there. Um, And I've been working on this story in many versions for about four months. So hopefully you find that I have researched it quite well. And um, I've, yeah, I've been working on this investigation, I would call it. So we can start time. All right. Okay, so uh, Charles Sharp was driving through a cornfield in the middle of Missouri when he heard the voice of God. And this voice told him that he needed to take his private fortune and use it to build a place that would be a refuge for the people in society who are suffering. That's exactly what he did, and this place is called Heartland. Heartland is a Christian community in that very same cornfield in Missouri, and it cost Charles Sharp $120 million to build this place. Um, Among many other things on the complex is a school, and this school is home to a youth rehabilitation program that is a little bit controversial because they use corporal punishment. 
And some of their tactics are range from things like beating students with wooden paddles to putting them in orange jumpsuits and forbidding them from talking for weeks at a time. Um, there are many more. Um, but this corporal punishment is legal in Missouri, as well as some other states, and um, it is defended by their owner and founder of this place, Charles Sharp. So I'd like to play for you one thing that Charles Sharp has said. It's the first quote. Bottoms, a lot of people think they're to set on. They're to spank. I never tried. Oh, sorry. Okay. So um, <clears throat> that's just a quick glimpse into Charles Sharp. Uh, we'll hear more from him later. But he goes on in that quote, actually, to say that he believes that pain is what um, unruly students respond the best to. Um, but there are plenty of people who disagree, including many former students from this school who allege and say that this punishment was a lot closer to abuse. So that's the second quote, is someone who is a former student. I never tried running away, but I had friends that just couldn't handle it, and like they would run through the cornfields to try to get out, and I mean, I would just remember them coming back and just all the, like, from the running through the corn, they would just be completely, like, scraped up and just horrible that they wanted to get out so bad that they would go through that much trouble. So um, these abuse allegations have been taken quite seriously by the state of Missouri at different points in time. They uh, launched an investigation that ended actually in a raid of the Heartland Complex, which made Heartland quite upset. They felt that their rights to um, take care of these children were being infringed, and they turned around and sued the state of Missouri, a lawsuit which they won, partially in part, or partially because of Charles Sharp's $6 million investment in that lawsuit, and also because Missouri's laws are written in a way that um, protects Heartland. And I also want to emphasize that there are other states that have um, laws that do similar things. Um, and another reason why Missouri's laws are the way that they are is because Charles Sharp has a lot to do with Missouri politics. He's donated um, just under a million dollars in the last 10 years to conservative candidates there, including John Ashcroft. Um, so I want to play one more quote that I think will kind of start to sum a little bit of this up. So the last quote, please, Charles Sharp. And it is a terrible place for a person who doesn't want to change. This is the awfulest place. This is right close to hell, about as close as you can get. Because we want them to know what hell is going to be like when they get there. If you don't want to change, you don't want to come here. So I think that Charles Sharp's recognition of um, the kind of grayness of this place is really important because it is just one big gray area. Legally, what they're doing is okay. But ethically, I think there are a lot more questions. Um, and at the end of this story, I think that a listener is going to feel outrage on behalf of children who are maybe being abused and disbelief at the political system that's allowing it to take place. But I also think there'll be a moment of change and kind of an uncomfortable recognition for a listener when they think about um, the positive testimonies that come out of this place, because there are just as many positive stories of change and rehabilitation as there are negative stories. Um, I think this story tackles ideas of religious freedom and One minute. Thank you. The, the ability to practice our religions, um, to raise our families in the ways that we think are right, and the idea that society maybe should take a spot in protecting vulnerable people. But I think um, it brings up questions for us about uh, where we draw our lines and who we allow or who we will make room for in our society and whether we'll make room for Heartland. Thank you. Great. Good job. <laughs>
All right, so now I'll have a discussion. It's a good pitch. Thank you. <laughs> um, so who are the people living there? These people are, well, there's about 500 people who work there. They have lots of businesses that are open to the public. And so the people that come to work there are people who come to help or be helped. That's something I heard a lot. But um, they're just people from Missouri, from all over the United States, who are down on their luck for a variety of reasons. Some of them come to Heartland to go through like a rehabilitation program similar to the student program. Um, but some of them just come because they're Christians and they enjoy the idea of living in a Christian society. Um, so they're, they're honestly like mostly pretty normal people who just have like a lot of love for Jesus. <laughs> so it's, it's just regular Christians, not like some specific sect. Yeah, they didn't like write their own book of the Bible or anything like that. They're like mega church Christians is how I would describe them. And so anybody can go, do they have to be approved in some way? Um, there's, there's sort of some weird stuff about like living there they have these like suburb looking houses and you like get to move in and if you work there then your like living expenses are kind of deducted from your pay so it's sort of like almost seemingly free um so there's sometimes like a wait list but they have like trailers they can put people in if they're really interested in but um there's no like official way to get in except like to get spots in these like rehabilitation programs and in the school Wow. Mm -hmm. So it's like a fucked up utopia. Yes. Yeah. It's sort of like a libertarian dream. Um, okay. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, and you said there's laws that protect places like this elsewhere. Are there places like this elsewhere? Well, what, yes and no. Heartland is pretty unique just because of how professional it is. Um, but there are like teen rehab programs and boot camps and like Christian organizations oh. that run rehab centers and things like that all over the country. Um, and the laws that exist are laws that exempt them from state licensing. So um, Heartland doesn't even have a record in the Department of Social Services, even though they run a school that you know is an overnight facility where students are sleeping and living. So what I really liked about this pitch is um, the complexity of the end. First of all, the point of change on sort of the point, the part of the listener, mm -hmm. in which this whole thing just sounds like an absolute nightmare. Um, but at the same time, you did talk about the things going forward. There's the rehab. There's this free rent. There's like it, it's it's like with this, some strings attached. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, but it's a very complex piece. It's not like at first when you were telling it to me, I was kind of worried. Like, oh, is this is this going to be attack? an attack on this dude. And uh, you brought it all home, and I think that this would be a great thing for me to bring to my staff. Um, awesome. <laughs> there's, there's so many great details in it. Um, everything from the orange jumpsuits uh, to, like, these pieces of great tape. I mean, is he, is he crazy, though? Yes and no. I mean, he is definitely charismatic. He's a, he's a pastor, so he, like, loves to tell stories. Um, but, and, you know, I guess that kind of depends what you think is crazy. Um, but he mm -hmm. also, you know, has thought a lot about this and, like, truly believes that, like, when a kid is being bad, it's because they haven't been told how to act. And the best way to tell them is to slap it into them, basically. Um, and, you know, he, like, was paddled as a kid and... and believes that it works so and do you have convinced i mean that's like he's but he sounds like mentally ill kind of right so and that's a sort of 
uh, scary, touchy thing to put on the radio. So, mm-hmm. I mean, are there other community leaders there that also are willing to talk? Yeah, a lot of the guys um, who, like, help run the rehabilitation program, we have, like, interviews with them, and, and they're, like, a little bit less uh, crazy sounding. Uh-huh. But I will say, I, I do think I picked, like, a few of the more outlandish quotes from him to uh-huh. show today, but... Um, <laughs> Just for you know the shock value. <laughs> okay, and then you have and you have kids from both sides. Yeah, there are a lot of students that go through the school end up staying and living at Heartland after it's all over. Partially because like how do you adjust from living there to going into like the real world? Um, and students who've made that transition have had a hard time. But yeah, there are lots of students there who went through the program, even like the bad kids out of the program, and are um, you know say that it set them straight and they needed that. So. The level of research that you've done, too, and the finding all the talkers and letting me know how, whether they're good talkers and finding people on both sides is just, it's great. So, so it yeah. sounds like a green light to take to the staff. Yeah. All right. Oh, great. Give you my card. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. So, so, here, so now I'm going to ask you a few questions. Um, so, so one of the things I think that you, this American life, you're going to embody this American life at this moment. I hope you're okay with that. Um, is that you get the like, here's this crazy person doing this wacky thing. Oh my gosh. Will you tell me like when that works and when that doesn't for your show? Because I think a lot of times people are like, I have the perfect This American Life story that goes on two ends. One, I just had the most amazing cup of coffee in my life and I'm going to give you a half an hour of that. And two, like, here's like the wacky guy from down the street and I'm going to go talk to him and he's crazy. <laughs> sure. I mean, it, it comes down to stakes. I mean, I just had uh, somebody pitch me a story about a really crazy uh, sort of lobbyist. And, I mean, he was crazy. But it just was going to sound like a takedown of this loser guy. And, like, what would it really change? What did it say about... What was the more universal takeaway from it? There wasn't Mm -hmm. really anything. And... Right here, I think that there are, there are like political issues. There are stakes with the kids. There are stakes with uh, should we be cho- like changing our laws and the way that we view these societies or communities. The and and it's complicated too. It's not just like here's this wacky dude and he's one dimensional. You know, like this situation is very multi dimensional and hard to sort of get um, a handle on. And it's super surprising. I mean, that's really the number one thing that we're looking for is something that we haven't heard before, something that's really shocking. And, like, I mean, I've heard a million stories about crazy dudes. And, like... What about cults? So here's the thing. I was a little, like, wary to send this because I was like, oh, how many, like, okay, we're going to get, here's this, like, crazy, you know, religious cult in the middle of nowhere. But what made it, what made it work for you? Because... We're in the United States. Those places are everywhere. Right. I mean, it seemed to me that she said it was normal people going there who were down on their luck and saw this as a sort of refuge. Um, and at, it, Did the legal issues make it more intriguing? That made them more intriguing as well. Um, but this idea that they were giving... Uh, <laughs> I know, it's early. <laughs> <laughs> no, it just didn't... I mean, I've gotten a bunch of cults. There's like, Glenn was in a cult. Um, but this, the scale mm-hmm. of this just made it seem different to me. Okay. 
So I just want to pose this to you, um, Allison and Julia. What point, you know, when people are thinking about characters in their pitch, what should they be thinking of? Because a lot of times we're intrigued by interesting characters and we think they automatically make a good story. And so, Julie, if you want to pipe in, too, you, or at least I just saw your head just, like, ah, immediately, no, like, go to the microphone. Just <laughs> okay, you're just... Eye contact. Okay, right. <laughs> so, so we'll go down the line. So, Allison, what is it, like, when people are pitching and thinking about characters and story that you would kind of caution against or tell them to make sure that they do? Um, I guess I would say who's the character that we follow, that, you know, in a story with a lot of people in it, who's the person that you know, we follow along through this journey and and will I connect with them in some way, even if they're crazy and involved in something that I don't disagree with, that, that I disagree with, um, I, I'll need to connect with them somehow. And what's, what's going to be I being, you know, the listener? How am I going to do that? I think I would just pipe in that when you have a really intense story about someone, I want to know that slightly zoom out, bigger picture, more about them, not just how they exist in the story you're telling me, because I think that gives me context to know how the stories come about. So I often find myself going, yeah, but what else besides this crucial or this crisis they're in? You know, <clears throat> just a little bit more. It doesn't have to be a lot, but it... Um, Does he bite his fingernails? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so some details go, small details go a long way. Yeah. All right, great. Good job. Applause, applause, Ryan. Um, all right, up next we have Ryan. Is it Kalith? Kyloth. Yeah, I need to put a pronouncer on my business card. Okay, sorry. Um, Ryan Kyloth, who's going to be pitching to All Things Considered. Hey, Allison. All right. Um, first, Abby, you fucking killed it, dog. <laughs> Whoa. Um, I'm Ryan. I am a new producer. Uh, changing careers from software design, which I did for the last seven. Um, so my first story was in February, actually for Audio Smut, and I think, Anne, you might have seen that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. Okay, uh, so the time starts now. now. Um, so I also have a hard-hitting investigative piece, but mine is about the Kelly Clarkson song, Since You've Been Gone, <laughs> um, which turns 10 at the end of this year. Uh, so I have a theory about Since You've Been Gone in three parts. One, that it's the perfect song. Two, that it was deliberately crafted that way. Uh, and three, that it was a pivotal moment in moving us to like where we are in pop music right now. So if, say, you're in a band and your band gets drunk before practice and learns Since You've Been Gone, uh, you quickly realize once you're inside the song that uh, it's stitched together of all these parts of other popular music from the time. It's got like this indie rock intro, but this dance pop beat. And then these like big 90s R&B diva vocals, but like a hard rock drums and guitars. Uh, it's like a Frankenstein's monster of a song. So I brought my theory to a guy named Chris Melanthi. He is pop music critic for Billboard magazine, Pitchfork, Slate, NPR music, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and he told me essentially... Ryan, this isn't a theory. This is just something true. Uh, And then we talked about Kelly Clarkson for two hours. Here's just a short clip of it. To me, the opening guitar is almost the most indie rock thing about the song. Then the beat comes in. And it's a very blippy digital beat. So that digital beat signals to you, oh, okay, wait a minute. This is a pop song. Here's the thing. We started. So he goes on like that, but you get the idea. Um, So part one, it's like this super song. 
Part two, it was deliberately made that way. So the co-producer and co-writer of Since You've Been Gone is a guy named Max Martin. Now, Max Martin was a music god in the late 90s. Britney Spears, NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, if you can name a song by any of them, chances are he wrote and produced it. Uh, but then that kind of bubblegum, he had 11 top 10 hits between 96 and 2000. But then that bubblegum kind of tanked, and so did Max Martin's career. Between, in the next four years, he didn't have a single top 10 hit. Uh, but the song that put him back on top, and he's since gone on to Katy Perry, Taylor Swift, Miley Cyrus, was Since You've Been Gone. Um, and he did it by fusing these styles together. How do I know? There's a smoking gun. Um, so in the early aughts, Max Martin started working with this young up-and-coming producer named Dr. Luke, Luke Gottwald. Um, he's the other co-writer and co-producer of Since You've Been Gone. And uh, in 2006, Dr. Luke gave a billboard interview where he talked about the genesis of Since You've Been Gone. And he said, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, and I have the quote, um, that he and Max were sitting around listening to alternative radio and they heard this like indie radio hit and thought, ah, great song, but if they just put a bigger chorus on it, this could be like a pop smash. And then he was like, well, why don't we just do that? And so he tells Billboard, yeah, so we put a bigger chorus on it and it worked. Uh, and Chris and I and uh, I've since researched it, and lots of other people agree that that song was probably Maps by the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. Uh, and I can play audio examples that illustrate this. Um, so part one, super song. Part two, deliberately crafted that way. But to get to your why, uh, you know, so far the story is just two nerds talking about a 10-year-old song they like. <laughs> why should a national audience consider it? That's part three. Um, and I'll let Chris answer. Since You've Been Gone is also a moment where a lot of indie rock fans began embracing pop in a big way. It became not ridiculous by 2006 to be both a diehard LCD sound system fan and to care very deeply about Justin Timberlake. <laughs> um, so A, Chris is just like the best talker. And uh, most of the story would be a two-way between he and I. I have some other characters, but uh, there isn't really time to fit them in this pitch. One minute. Um, so it can be hard to remember, but in the 90s and early aughts, music camps were divided. Like, if you were an indie rock fan, you listened to college radio. And if you liked black music, you listened to black radio. And if you thought you were cool, you definitely did not listen to American Idol winner Kelly Clarkson. But that's not true at all anymore. Hipsters love Beyonce. Pitchfork reviews Taylor Swift. And indie bands like MGMT are in the top 40. There's no longer such thing as a guilty pleasure. And Since You've Been Gone was this pivotal moment that got us there because it fused all these styles together. It, by sounding, by starting off like an indie rock song, it could Trojan horse its way into like two cool fans' hearts before they could go, oh no, it's Kelly Clarkson, she doesn't even write her own songs, or whatever. Fifteen seconds. Um, and I think it would be perfect for the D segment, or E segment of ATC. <laughs> You've been looking at Damn, that's some research to get to what segment. <laughs> well done. Um, do I sit? Do I stay? Oh, I stay. Um, I love the way that you pitched that, first of all. So just to like, because I think this might be generally helpful, like, I actually love that you got up and were like, this is an investigation about Kelly Clark. You know, like, there were things that you said that, like, if you think about both the structure of a pitch and the structure of a story, I was like, I'm with you. You just surprised me. And, like, I think we look a lot for, like, where's that moment of surprise where this thing is not the thing you expect it to be. 
Um, and you did that a couple times during during your pitch, like there's a smoking gun, you know. Like I mean, it was so you used some really sticky. nice, um, you know, it was a really nicely structured pitch, and you, it was also a very organized pitch, and I appreciate that. Um, so I have like, a lot of things to say. I'll try and keep it. Um, I'll try and keep it brief. Um, first of all, I. Um, I'll, I'll, there are like red flags, and then there are like this is awesome. So like sure. we'll do red flags first, and then we'll do the awesome. Um, NPR definitely like there's been a lot of like what makes a pop song, like yeah. anatomy of a pop song kinds of things, which isn't to say we can't just keep doing more things like that. Um, but it's a little bit of one of those things where when you know when we're pitching that kind of thing, we have to be aware that like. It's come up before yeah. in some form. Um, that said, maybe the like awesome side of it is like I don't know that I've heard this story, and I love that it's totally focused on this one song. You have like very clear, you know, one song, the series of characters associated with the song. So that's you know working in its working in its favor. Um, there are um, there are a lot of themes that you brought up. And so I think I would be thinking, I, I would be wondering if, how, you know, whether all of those themes are going to get de-emphasized by trying to put them all together. There's the theme of, you know, a moment in time when a certain set of people started listen to, listening to a different kind of music. There's, like, something you said that was totally intriguing to me, but then it didn't come up again, which was the story of this guy, Max Martin, who was flying so high and now he's like trying to, you know, like that in itself was like, oh, that sounds like a great story. Um, you know, and, um, and, and there is a, like a little bit of a red flag with NPR has gone in interesting directions in terms of its music programming or the NPR music stuff. And sometimes we're a little too heavy on the indie oh, yeah, sure. plus pop. And so I, I only say that to just say sometimes those are harder pitches to bring in because they're like less surprising genres. Yeah, right. um, and then I, I wrote down something I write down so often, just even in like the course of our, some daily story about something you won't remember tomorrow. <laughs> Why does my mom care? And like this story will be amazing if my... 73-year-old mother says, I heard this thing about this this pop singer named Kelly <laughs> Your mom Carson. sounds like that? No, I'm okay. totally like... <laughs> we won't like send that to caricature her. Caricature of my mother who doesn't sound like that at all. Um, you know, as opposed to my mom saying, what is this pop thing that you had on, you know? Um, and, and I say that not to say, like, yeah. so it doesn't work. It's like, that's your challenge with our show is that you know, at a time when we're all sort of thinking about audiences as more segmented things, we still have a big, broad audience, and the challenge for us is not to not talk about what, you know, 29-year-olds are listening to, but to talk about it in a way that's going to interest my mom. <laughs> there, um, can I respond to that? Totally, yeah. Uh, this is just off the top, so, but... I mean, this happens throughout pop history, mm -hmm. so it might be it might make the story too long. But you could trace it back to the you know in the start of the '80s, things were divided, and then Run DMC and Aerosmith, and like rock mm -hmm. fans like rap, and it goes back to the yeah, '60s, yeah. black music and white music mixing and mixing and mixing. So you could 
like have something for everyone, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's the moment for the senior citizens. <laughs> um, so let me ask you a couple questions. You said you said near the end of your pitch, most of this would be a two-way between Chris, Chris and, and I. Me. He's the critic. Why? Why is that the structure of this story? I guess it doesn't have to be. That's just the way I was thinking about it, but I'm, I'm totally open to rethinking that. Mm-hmm. Um, Max Martin famously doesn't give interviews. I've seen one, and it was in Swedish. He's Swedish. Um, Dr. Luke does. He's not the easiest guy to get, um, but I don't have him. Mm-hmm. The other really good talker that I have is uh, there's like a popular indie pop band called um, Tokyo Police Club, and they covered this song on like a covers record a while ago. And I have uh, one of their dudes talking about how like yeah our way too cool fans loved this cover because we, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I guess to your question, the reason mostly Chris and I, that's just the first thing I had because I have the best tape from him. Mm-hmm. But And in your mind, how long is this story? Um, what's the new E segment? Eight minutes and nine seconds? <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> I think you're totally right. <laughs> I, I, Starting I was, November 17th. Oh. Um, yeah, I, I think... Because, I mean, I'd love to do, like, a four of the Music Nerds mm-hmm. podcast version that's, like, 20 minutes, you know? Mm-hmm. I think there's enough mm-hmm. good stuff, but not everybody mm-hmm. cares about that. Mm-hmm. And just a theoretical, but I'm curious to see what you say, could you do this story in five minutes? Yeah. Totally. Would it change? I mean, what I, do you think would change if it were shorter than what you envision? I'd have to look at it and think about it. I think what you brought up of too many themes, I'd have to figure out which one. I'd shop some to your mom and see which of these is least interesting to you and drop that one. I'll just one. hand you her phone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd take a look which theme is least interesting and drop that, probably. Yeah. And when you say, also, to go back to the question of format, when you say, like, a two-way between you and... You and Chris. Or it could just be Are Chris. you being a narrator in that sense? Or are you like, so Chris, talk to me about this song. Like, are we hearing... Um, I think it's... Uh, this is comparing myself ridiculously. But it, we have a, a good rapport. And in the tape, we have kind of like... A, it, it's just fun to hear the both of us geeking out about it, I think. Mm-hmm. Maybe people wouldn't. And I do... I made sure to get in those two hours. Like, he could be the only voice. And he's but are more authoritative you, is there this. a script where you're writing, you know, narration? Or is this like, here's a six-minute two-way mixed with music? Oh. I could do it either way. Um, I don't, I haven't thought about which would work better, and I should have. Um, yeah, I think I could do it either way. Because we very, we very rarely air things that are two ways. It's a That aren't our then. hosts doing the two-way. Yeah. Which is not to say it has to be scripted, either. Yeah. It's like... Joe Richmond's stories, it's not like he delivers a script to us. He uses a different format. But but the two-way thing is like probably the reasoning has to do with some sense that people will be confused oh, about. Yeah, yeah. You know, they turn no, on the radio and they say, I thought this was all things considered, but there's some other guy hosting named Ryan. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, um, this could totally work as I'm the narrator and Chris is the expert. Totally, and he's just the take. And, and just to be clear, I'm not saying you should do it that way because that's also the predictable way to do <laughs> yeah. it. But, um, yeah. Yeah. All right, so next steps. I w- uh, we're doing like a, a traffic light. Yeah, traffic light thing. I, I would say um, an in- enthusiastic yellow. <laughs> Bright yellow. Um, Bright yellow. <laughs> Bright blinking yellow. All right. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, okay, so he should follow up. 
Yeah, I think that that you should you should we should like sit down and talk and like and think about the story, but also think about different ways to play with it. Yeah, okay. cool. Yeah, great. Oh yeah, you said you could imagine a longer podcast version. Do you oh, have a hell. podcast or something? I don't. Can I have it for stage dive if they don't take it? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck yeah. Okay, great. All right, All right. yay, good job. So this is good. So I wanted to, I, I spoke to you about this earlier, Allison. So there's definitely an element of peg to this, in ter- like anniversary. You know, what, mm-hmm. it's 10-year anniversary is what you said. So talk a little bit about the, the peg, the news peg, and how you, you can talk about how you feel about it, good, bad. Do you like it when people pitch you with a peg? Do you want them to have something? Because, I mean, you're a, sh- a daily show, so like, there's something that sometimes has to be happening now. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, yeah. I mean, most of the time, but... Um, yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned the anniversary. I mean, we didn't, we didn't talk about this, but I actually kind of have a huge anniversary pet peeve. Mm. Um, when, I mean, I didn't bring it up because, like, the, the point is your story was interesting enough. It didn't need the anniversary peg, you know? And, and I feel like we do a ton of anniversary stuff, and some of it should exist, and some of it like, seems to only exist because there's an anniversary. That too often the anniversary peg, and this is different right. than the news peg, right, right there, yeah. is kind of happens in lieu of thinking, like, what's the compelling story here that people need to hear? Um, you know, and sure, like, if, you know, if the intro to this piece said, 10 years ago there was this huge pop song, like... I would be fine with that, but I wouldn't be saying that because that somehow makes the story more compelling than it would be if it was nine years ago. Like, we would take the story because it teaches me something and is fun and, you know. Um, As far as the news peg, and especially, I suppose, for the stuff that... I mean, I guess I feel somewhat similar about the news peg. Yes, we have reporters who are talking about, you know, when we're doing interviews that are about things that happened this week, things that happened today, and we're trying to provide context and we're... You know, and we're trying to, um, you know, tell you why you should care about this thing that happened at this moment. But I guess I kind of come back to the same thing I said about the anniversary that that the the peg. Some sometimes we over we we just use the peg as an excuse, mm-hmm. and instead of thinking if there were no peg for this story what would be the thing that would make it awesome and would make people keep the radio on mm-hmm. and so so i don't mean to say like pitch everything to atc that never has a peg and you know <laughs> like i you know i think it is really helpful to know you know on this day there's going to be a court ruling in this case and you know it's been really interesting and i've been learning about the backstory and you know like Sure, that's that might that would help the pitch instead of just you know there's this court case and I've been following it. But the problem is I, I'm not I don't know that I'm being that helpful in a way because it, there's not some simple like there needs to be a news peg. What's happening today? You know I think that you're not we, all wearing fedoras with press on the side and <laughs> saying news news news. Um, yeah, that's I my imagination that, of an all things considered. You know, and pitch I suppose meeting. the difference too is like we have a whole like we have dozens of reporters and they're they're already doing that. And so like what we're looking for is to f- fill in those other spaces in the show where you get a a break in a way. Um which isn't to say that those holes should be filled with just like a bunch of light stuff that 
you know, light and frothy material, but our job is not just to bring you the news, but to, like, interest you in the world and take you places and, you know, and that's what we need more of. Um, you know, we have a lot of people feeding us the news. And just one last thing before we move on to the next one. Um, it feels like to me a lot of times editors will come back and say, can you do this? Can you do that? Can you talk about what it is, like, in terms of appreciation? How should people respond when you come back with questions like, how can you kind of modify this story in terms of people's, you know, do you, how much pushback in a way do you want or flexibility do you want when somebody, um, when somebody pitches a story? to think about how to answer that. I mean, obviously you need some flexibility because there's no like joy in working with somebody inflexible because that just sort of means you're not going to be able to get to yes. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, but I guess I think about it as like a conversation. I'm much more interested in somebody engaging with the process. It's not like I'm saying like do this, do that. Are you you know? And if you'd say no forget your piece, I, I guess I think of that process as a conversation, and if the person comes back and says, look, I, I figured this out, I found this person, but this other thing you asked, like, it just doesn't work, and here's why. I'm as interested in engaging in, like, it's, it's a conversation, I guess. Okay, yeah. great. Um, all right, up next, we have Frank Allman, who's going to be pitching to Julie Shapiro of Radio Tonic. Come on down. Sorry. I just Frank, wanted that on I tape take, with applause. <laughs> may I take your picture? Sure. For the internet? Really? <laughs> and everyone Really? <laughs> that was good. Is it a good one? All right. Yes. I'm sorry. We'll, do All right. Be- we'll do it before and after. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so I'm just going to go ahead and hit start. Oh, okay. Does he okay. get to introduce himself? Oh, yeah, okay. Introduce yourself, blah, blah, blah. My name is Frank Almond. I'm probably one of the few people at this conference who has no professional connection at all with the radio industry. I'm a musician, and I'm a violinist, and I play mostly classical music. Um, by this time, I've pretty much done everything you can do in the classical music world, from lots of recordings and touring as a soloist and chamber musician, a lot of orchestra stuff and teaching at places like Northwestern and a bunch of other things. So that's who I am. Okay. For these purposes. Okay. Uh, one of the other things I do is I run a chamber music series in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I often play on that series. We do four or five concerts a year. One of those concerts was last January, late last January. And I finished the concert and was walking the short distance to my car. And someone shot me with this taser and stole my violin. Which is already a little bit unusual because you don't often see someone using a taser for an armed robbery. But Oh, in Australia, let me tell you. Really? I'm sorry to hear that. Um, more unusual in, in this case was that the violin the assailants took off with was one of the most famous and recognizable violins in the world. Uh, it was made by Antonio Stradivari in 1715 and was worth millions of dollars. So within about 12 hours, 
there were people, reporters on my lawn, and within about 24 hours, uh, basically every major news outlet in the world was trying to get a hold of me for some sort of statement. And a massive investigation started, uh, largely spearheaded by the Milwaukee Police Department uh, Homicide Division, ironically enough. And um, lots of people from the FBI and the Art Crimes Unit and a couple of people from Interpol early on. And there was a lot of speculation, especially early on, that perhaps this was uh, some sort of Dr. Evil type person with a white cat in his lap that had sort of targeted this particular instrument um, that he wanted to have. And then there were other people thinking, well, maybe it's just a couple of little local thing, and perhaps they didn't know what was going on. And happily, uh, after nine days, they found the instrument, and it was uh, intact and not really damaged at all. And uh, it turned out that it, it had been a local operation, a couple of guys one in particular who had uh, put this together. These were two guys who were not Nobel winners, if I could put it that way. And um, the story, um, of course, got uh, a tremendous amount of press initially, and then it sort of died down, and then as soon as they found the violin again, it, it all kind of started over again with this giant media circus. And there's been a tremendous amount of, of, of interest that really hasn't abated even up until recently. There's been a lot of print media on it, a couple of radio things, even all things concerted, just did a little piece on it. And But it occurred to me a couple months ago, what has not happened with this is it, some sort of audio narrative that incorporates the voices of the principal characters involved. In other words, largely what's appeared is people interviewing various characters in, in the whole caper and then writing a story or doing a story on the radio through someone else's eyes. But I think it would be really compelling to get basically uh, the cast of characters from start to finish and bring... A, a really individual human voice to what was essentially a real life Con Brothers movie, you know, with uh, all of the ups and downs and a lot of trauma and a lot of drama and uh, some really amazing comic elements to it that that I honestly couldn't make up. And it just seemed like uh, the kind of story or that that Radiotonic might be interested in. So, thank you. Um, I brought you so, easy. Yeah, I don't know where to start. Um, because immediately I thought, oh, great, we'll tell it from the violin's point of view. You know, like there's my. Because one thing we say is radio telling, radiotonic storytelling with a twist. So I'm always going, okay, where's the twist going to be? Is it in the structure? Is it in the content? Is it in the story? Is it in the voice, et cetera? So um, I think you could <clears throat> not necessarily tell it from the inside of the case and the violin, but I think you could. <laughs> really bring the violin as a character. And I, I wondered if you were going there as well, like, um, you know, how much can we talk also about, like, how, you know, what is the worth of this? And um, you know that the monetary worth is, but it also strikes me that how do you value, in, how do we come to value instruments and what connections we have with them? And so what I haven't heard from you is, like, a, you're very, how it affected you personally. I mean, you've, you've kind of um, talked about what happened 
first, second, third, you know. But I, I think I'm, I'm curious to go a little deeper into the emotional impact it had for you because it feels like a, a very personal piece as well. So um, my first question would just be, how, how do you, what's the form of this? Is it a monologue with tape? Is it, I mean, how do you see it unfolding? I think there could be any number of ways of doing it. I mean, a monologue with a tape and maybe some musical examples. Um, you could bounce from one character to the other. If, depending on how many people that were directly involved you wanted to talk to. Um, obviously, I was the person with the most experience and most <laughs> detailed knowledge of what actually happened. And I think one of the really compelling parts of the story and what captured a lot of people's interest was I'm a musician and I got thrown into this world of criminality that's even past the music business. <laughs> and it's, I was in all these situations all of a sudden that I never expected to find myself in, beyond being shot with a taser. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and to, to your point about the instrument, that's a really salient uh, element as well, because people don't really understand, first of all, why these things are worth so much. They don't understand, well, some people do, but there's a this connection that sort of happens when you live and work with these things over a period of years, um, aside from the fact that they're essentially functional antiquities that are 300 years old and have these amazing histories and pedigrees. The thing's in my house all day long, and it's, it's this unbelievably high-end tool that allows me to do what I can do, you know, to the best of my ability. And yeah. to have that yeah. suddenly removed... It's not really like someone taking a child away, but um, well, you this know, is now it's getting yeah. even more interesting to me. Yeah. I think you are really crucial to this. The story itself is incredible and fun and surprising and ironic. I'm not sure and, it was fun, but well, <laughs> it's fun to listen to. But I mean, um, the way you presented it was fun, I should say. But I, I think there's something to me that what's really interesting is yeah, you, what's coming out now, which is you know, you, you know, how was this for you to go through? looking back and trying to, you know, you've been involved in this, coming from the safe world of classical music and all of a sudden, you know, dragged into the seedy underbelly of, you know, Milwaukee. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, it's really unusual. So like flat out, I'm interested to hear it and I can hear it playing out with the help of the fabulous ABC sound engineers in a really interesting sonic way where, you know, we could take the journey with you. We could, I do kind of like the idea of bringing the violins. I mean, I think you could get the moment of it happening. I mean, we don't do, well, sometimes we do, reenacting in a campy way. It could be dreadful, but I think you could play with the suspense and the shock of that moment in a really interesting mm -hmm. way, sonically. So, um, yeah, I should also say, like, I'm always interested in how is it going to sound. So, you know, is it your, is it the one voice, your voice coming through with the whole story? Do we have um, news clips? Are we going to draw archival material from, you know, do you have, um, have, you, have you thought about, like, a duration? Do you feel like this should... What, what do you what do you put this at durationally? I, yeah, I don't think it's a five minute piece. Um, we, I've heard a lot of those, and that's one thing that pushed me in this direction. Mm -hmm. um, it's topical that way, and you get the flavor of the story in five or six minutes. But I think to really get some of the truly bizarre things that happened, and especially the c comical element um, of things like. You know, when they found the violin, it was in a suitcase up in an attic on the south side, and the guy had left his driver's license inside of the suitcase. You know, I mean, that's, 
Or the names of the guys that stole it, or you know, the guy that had a barber shop and bought the taser and had it shipped to his barber shop, and he's, details, he also details, sold details, Tupperware yeah. on the side. Yeah. You know, that that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you, just, you just can't make it up. Yeah, you know? yeah. So it could go a number, any number of different ways, depending on how how much. But I, yeah, maybe ten, fifteen minutes. I think. Yeah, I think the, the, yeah. those details emerge. It becomes more colorful, kind of fun. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think we wouldn't never we wouldn't want to do that in place of getting to the emotional impact it had on you because I think that's where there's some really rich stuff right. and it could come out deadpan. I mean, you you sort of have a very calm affect, so I can hear the kind of ridiculousness mounting as you sort of you know <laughs> I could hear you voicing where you can yeah you imagine your voice in it or about because you seem to be saying it's about these characters and everybody else, but I I still think it's you and I, I hear maybe your I sh- voice. Yeah, maybe it. I should clarify that. I think our voices are are what's important. It would be great to have me speaking, of course, but it might also be interesting to have the FBI art crimes guy that was so involved with it speaking as well. He's brilliant. There's a violin expert actually from Chicago who was very much involved with the case. Um, just a even violin little, even, expert. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> something was worth millions of dollars. There's yeah. going to be a couple of experts around <laughs> that actually know what they're talking about. Yeah. How much do they earn? No. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think I think. Have you written about this yet, or have, is there a draft of a version of? Have you? I took journal some, entries. I mean, how, have you? Yeah. Did you? How did you document this? That was as it was happening to you. I've. I took some notes early on in the in the in the whole saga, but um, I haven't really fleshed it out yet. I, I was cognizant enough of what was happening to try and just yeah. sort of keep a little bit of a diary. But, you weren't um, by chance recording yourself. No, <laughs> um, but I, I just think bringing some of that to life could be interesting too, in terms of getting you know again the reflection of what you were going right. through at the time. And unfortunately, um, uh, uh, fortunately for me and your question. There's a lot that's been written that is actually quite factual now, and it's very much still in my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. I'm, I'm sure. Well, we would maybe loosen that up and kind of go a little deeper. For, right. Um, yeah, I think we could do. A, I think, and and especially because it has the the, the through line of the violin, and that it's really a sound based topically, and that it doesn't mean that everything we put on the show has to have a, a sound cue peg like that, but. Um, but it, it helps. It helps me hear it come to life. And I'm also, because I'm in a position to consider American pitches, but I have to really understand what's going to resonate in Australia and everywhere else through the podcast. But for me, it's helping me guide uh, decisions about what has a, a bigger impact on, on everyone and not just a very localized story. So I think, you know, relationships to instruments, it's funny anyway. People, it's not a funny story. It's an interesting story anyway. <laughs> but um, I think there is something deeper, more universal. And you know whether I was taking pitches here or in Australia, I would be looking for that. But especially, um, you know, I think this is something anyone that hears it could relate to. Right. Okay. So, so, red, green. Oh, enthusiastic yellow. I'd say like totally green. Hey. Not just green, totally green. Um, but but I I will say you know what's the next step is yeah. send me. Well, I could send you our. We have a. Mm-hmm. Proposal form just to 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 say who who are the characters you're most interested. I'll probably say let's tone it down to mostly about you, but I'm open to hearing about specifics. It's all um, about me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, and and start writing about it a little bit because I want to okay. see how this is going to come to life through words. So. Right. Um, Great. Hey. 
So I just want to take a couple of minutes with this before we open it up to questions. So, Julie, how would you describe the stories that you're looking for mm. for Radiotonic, particularly, like you said, like, you know, from an American audience, like if we're doing pitches for you? Yeah, um, well, storytelling with a twist is the... It really does... We are looking for something unusual. So ABC has a fabulous documentary show called 360 Documentaries. So very ironically, it's the one form I'm not actually that interested in, in getting. I'm more interested in personal stories, fiction, nonfiction. We're doing some drama. We're, we can do essays um, scored heavily or not, or, or lightly. So, um, you know, I think... You, I'm, so they can be about everything and anything. There's we're duration agnostic right now. Any length really can work for us. We're, it's a brand new show. We're finding out what we're doing as we go a bit. Um, for instance, this weekend. But we are trying to take stories that you might hear and tell them in new ways. So this weekend there's a story about um, how you listen, what it sounds like like what it sounds like in your head and it, we've heard that story a lot it's reported all the time kind of how you know perception but this is this uh, producer tracked two versions of himself one in his head and one in the studio and throughout the whole thing he's he, the guy in the, the tim in the studio is directing the tim in his head all around his <clears> brain and he, that's how you how he brings in the scientists i mean there's fact there's philosophy in it and it's just a, it's just a really original creative way of getting, and then it's produced with so much sound. So he's really simulating what the scientists have explained to him what you're going to hear in the head. So just to say, like, we're going to take, we're going to always say, how is the sound going to be used to help tell the story? And, um, you know, we have the resources to help with that, but it's also great when the producers can do it. So, so Stephanie, I just wanted to, so I'm really curious. Frank, you don't have to stay at the mic if you don't want to. Yay! Oh, wait, can I ask Frank oh, one wait. more question? Yeah. And um, I always write about, what actually, what technical resources do you bring to this, and what would you need, what would you be expecting from, from us? <laughs> Uh, a microphone and you know I mean I'm I'm pretty novice at this Mm -hmm. it's not really my world so at one point I was even asking Anne you know yeah. What am I doing here? Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah. immediately, I think this is a written piece. We get you into a studio, Probably, yeah. you track, yeah. we make it sound really yeah. interesting and fabulous. Yeah. And okay. Cool. Okay. Great. Thanks. So, so I just wanted you to very briefly say, I mean, because for one thing, I was like, oh, you know, how would this merit, like, if we get, because we already know it's been on All Things Considered, so we can hear how All Things Considered decided to tell, like, told this story. How would this American life, if they were interested in, what would be would this be something that this American life would be interested in? I mean, it's definitely like a spectacular story. You have a, a different twist from somebody from the inside. But is this kind of a story where you're like, well, uh, okay. Like, it sounds spectacular to everybody else. Um, I think the issue of it being over... Uh, or not over-covered, but very covered, would be something that we might be wary of. Mm-hmm. I think that, like... Honestly, if we were to do it, it might just be like a two-way with Ira and him. Right. And it would just, mm. it, it would, it might work if it, it like was super on point for some theme that we had. Mm-hmm. Like if the theme was. So your Stradivarius was stolen, what do yeah. you do? Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that. Something like that. That one's coming up, right? Uh, a couple months down. It's interesting okay. though. We're actually doing, we're working on this big piece about the Milwaukee Police Department. So. <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot. But I think I think that the so in that case it might work, but for like its own story, I think that the stakes might be a little. It's not it's not super comp. 
complicated in terms of what you take away from it. Mm. Um, and the stakes, like, I mean, the fact of the matter is that the violin was found. I think it would be more, um, if anything, it might have worked as a funny story for Snap Judgment. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because it's like neat and sort of self-contained and Mm. entertaining. Oh, okay. All right. Great. All right, so we want to open it up. So come down to the mic, start asking your questions. (coughs) There's a rush just Mm. for people who are just listening to this. It's like really, it's really crazy right now. Everybody's running down the aisle. So um, be careful. All right, Julie, are you okay? Hi. um, I have a question, Stephanie. So you're saying you're looking for like shocking or surprising story pitches, and I loved the level of detail and research that Abigail put into that. I think as an editor, I would be thinking, okay, but what's the story you want to tell? What's the, what am I going to hear? How do you want to tell this story? And I was wondering, do you feel like, we'll take care of that. We know how to tell a good story. You don't actually have to do that part, or do you want them to already be able to articulate that? I mean, ideally, it would be great if, yes, you sort of were able to articulate that. But I also see this as a story about not necessarily one man, but of a community, which would involve a lot of going in and talking to much more people and getting tape. And the, like probably you would go down with one of us as your producer. And like it's enough of an arc there or enough of a problem there with enough surprising facts, I think, that we could definitely shape it into a real... Um, arc and I think that a lot of the twists and the turns and things would come out in the reporting of it anyone else or you just going to the restroom alright come on down uh, this is like a little half baked but I'm kind of curious I'm, I have a story I recorded a while ago and I'm interested in pitching somewhere and working on, on my own and um, it's a story that takes place abroad um, and it's like a very crazy scam slash kidnapping story, and I'm obsessed with it. But <laughs> something I've been thinking about is like this would be, no matter where I pitched it, it would be sort of hard to fact check um, because of a lot of reasons. But basically, I would kind of have to go on the word of the person who told me the story, which like I believe. Um, but I'm curious how each of your shows like. I guess it's not very ATC, um, but, like, how you would, what you would think of something like that. Like, would that be a deal-breaker? Interesting. Um, It sort of depends on the story. If it's saying something about somebody else, um, you know, I mean, we, we spend... I don't know if you heard Joe the other day say we spend $30,000 on fact checkers a year. And it's really, um, it's it's just, it really depends. Like, for example, I am t- have a story that's coming out next Friday that's about my family. And um, you can't interview anybody in my family about it. <laughs> it's a personal story. Um, uh, so I think that, and so they sort of do have to take my word for it. Um, but I think that the one person removed thing is sort of problematic. If it's somebody else's story that you are telling, because... No, sorry. Uh, it would be like... 
it's him telling a story that happened to him. Okay, um, so you to himself. Tape. Yeah. Um, it's like him talking about his own life, but like the people that, you know, kind of tried to scam him, like, I need some, don't. Could you just tell like a two minute version? Yeah. Of no, just like 30 second. 30 Sorry. second. Okay. <laughs> I'll do my best. Basically, it was this guy who was like traveling in um, Saigon and sort of like met up with these kids who were like, oh, let's hang out. We'll show you around the city. We're visiting our family. And like, kind of were like, oh, come to lunch at our house. And like, long story short, he got sort of like tricked into a gambling scheme, like in a very long and complicated and like menacing way and kind of had to like get out of town afterwards. Um, is he white? He is white. Yeah, that's problematic. <laughs> okay. Um, I, yeah, that is, uh, at ye, that is actually a problem with the fact checking, not just because he's white, but um, <laughs> just that he's like a foreigner visiting this place and mm-hmm. he gets scammed. I don't know, it's also a little bit of a told story. Um, this happens to travelers and white people. Why are you obsessed with it? <laughs> I think it's really interesting as sort of like a psychological like manipulation. Like the thing mm-hmm. that I think is interesting is like this was clearly a scam that had been done before mm-hmm. and that like they could predict exactly how he would behave in every step of the process. Mm-hmm. And like that's what I think is interesting. Um, okay, great. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Uh-huh. So I just wanted to, just because we only have like you know five minutes left, there are a couple of things that I think is important for people when they're pitching. When do your pitch meetings happen? Because when should people send their pitches? When should they send that email? I mean, they happen every other Tuesday. Okay. So don't send it on Tuesday. Okay. <laughs> when should they expect to... Oh, so we'll just go down the line, Allison. I mean, we have a we have a pitch meeting for The Daily Show every morning at 9.30, but so, you know, other things come to us by other means. There's no particular time. Okay. Julie? Um, up until recently, it was all open for business 24-7, but um, we are starting to commission in batches. Um, so I would say I would be looking for something for the, well, for this room only, if you got something to me by the end of December, we could consider it for early, uh, first half of 2015. Otherwise, we'll be doing a big call out for both the shows for any... Um, sound artists in the room. We also do a full hour-long sound art show in the evenings, and I'd love to hear from you as well. So, yeah, but we're going to start um, organizing. But I'm happy to talk about something at any point before you actually pitch it. So those inquiries can come just to my in, to my. You can send me words to the inbox at any time. And where should they send the pitches? Uh, pitches at thislife.org. Allison, um, if you want to pitch, come chat with me afterwards because I have about four names of myself and my colleagues who would love to hear from you. So I'll hand over emails. Okay. Um, yeah, email me or radiotonic at abc.au.net. Yeah. I don't think I've said it out loud. And um, I should, uh-huh. yeah. I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, it's okay. I should just add one thing, which is one of the complicated things I'm sure some of you have come across at NPR is that there's also a, a, an organized method of pitching to our regional bureau chiefs. So it mm. kind of depends on what kind of story it is and if you're based in California and it's a story about California you should probably be pitching to the California editor at least first so I'm happy to share that information as well. And is there a word length? I mean I don't think, I'm assuming that Stephanie you don't have a word like Julie, do you have a word length for the pitches? Uh-huh. Um, 
Yeah, we actually have a short pitch form on the site, which I just remembered that you know does limit because I just want to. Uh, first, I want to hear just the idea, and then if mm-hmm. I care, I'm going to ask you to write a lot more about it. And you know, yeah, definitely get into details. Okay. I would say that we're kind of the opposite of a lot of other people. Like a lot of people want two or three paragraphs. We want more. Like we're fine with you send. Like don't send us a log of all of your tape mm-hmm. or something like that. But like as many details and uh, complexities that you can give us, the better. And you have pitch guidelines on your website. We do. Okay. Allison, what's your? Do you have a word length for? Not ATC? officially. Just remember how unpleasantly busy we are. <laughs> so, like two paragraphs. The you know, like if you wh- can put it into one paragraph, that will demonstrate something very impressive. So try okay. for one paragraph. <laughs> Great. And do you have pitch guidelines on your website? No. no. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think if there's like kind of one final. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Hi. Um, I was wondering, can you talk about like getting tape before you pitch and then also editor wanting to control the tape you get tension? Uh, uh, wanting to control the tape you get? So a lot of times they will say, don't do the interviews before we accept your story because we want to control like what you're asking in the interviews and where your story is going. But at the same time, a lot of you, you want to know you have access and you want to know what they're going to say and... I would say that um, I almost always do a pre-interview just on the phone and get a sense of whether they're a good talker, like are they introspective, are they funny, these are things that we would want to know in the pitch, Mm -hmm. Um, and what they're willing to talk about, what what their feelings are about various things, like there's, you need, I think, at least that. That being said, if you went out and got tape already, like, worst case, we just all go together again and get more. Um, so that's not really an issue. Julie, Allison, do you have anything different? or? Well, I just think if you do a lot of work beforehand, you still have to manage expectations about whether it's going to pay off. So um, just guard against that kind of feeling a little bit more entitled since you've already done a lot of the work that you're already that far ahead because you still have to get the idea across and have it resonate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I would th- say... Oh, oh, wait, Allison? I would... Yeah, Allison. I, I was just going to say, there's no harm in having done an interview. We might just send you back again if there's some key. But did you ask X? You know, you might so tell your interviewees you might to to let you you know stay in touch with them. And then one um, kind of one final thing, and then I'll let you say um, is uh, in terms of when you send your pitch out, when when should people follow up? Like, how long should they kind of expect? Do you give? Rejections. How long, you know, do they sit there kind of waiting and then checking their phone and then checking their, you know? Um, I would say we try to get back to every pitch. Um, sometimes it takes a few weeks. Mm. Um, sometimes it, t- it could take up to a month, probably. Mm. Um, but you, since we're on the two-week cycle, that's generally good. So, like, follow-up, I think, after, give it, like, Two or three weeks. Okay. With a nice email that's like, just checking in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, we're in the kind of two part. So if you send the short pitch, you're going to get a really quick response, yay or nay. And then once you send the long pitch, it's probably going to take a little while, especially now. I mean, again, we're just getting started. We're trying to do things, make decisions mm-hmm. in batches. So um, generally, I'm finding that things are pretty long, long durationally. The, the relationships are lasting a couple months. So it's from go to woe, new new phrase I've learned, um, you know, it, I'll probably get back to you right away, and then if I'm interested, we'll develop it over the next couple of weeks. And Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, 
uh, I know that our I know that our regional bureau chiefs get hundreds of pitches, so they definitely encourage people not to be devastated if they don't get immediate response, but they try to respond to everyone. For us, we get fewer pitches, but where our time is also so incredibly unpredictable when we're trying to put the show on every day. So similarly, there's no harm in just checking back in. Um, and, you know, we owe you a response at some point. And what you'll come across is just that we're, it's hard to manage all of that. All right. So I, I interrupted you, Stephanie, before you were going to say one thing. Is it gone from your mind? Oh, I was just going to say, like, don't, you know, buy a plane ticket out and, <laughs> and fly there and do all of that if, you know, uh, you, a phone call will suffice. Okay. Great. All right, thanks, everybody, for coming. Thank you.